Welcome, good people. Oof, has it been a year or what? We are quickly coming to the end of 2020, and back in January when I launched this podcast, like all of us, I had no idea what this year had in store. COVID wasn't even on the radar yet, if you can think back to what that was like. I remember having a deep sense of optimism and creative energy as I looked forward to what 2020 would hold. And in spite of a global pandemic, some really good things have taken shape. I was able to stick with this podcast experiment for one, and my counseling practice, Mindful Counseling GR, launched our third location in West Michigan in June, which was definitely a little nerve-wracking. And the Relationally Focused Psychodynamic Therapy, or RFPT, Continuing Ed program that I teach in, is now halfway through our second year um, and has been just a huge source of professional satisfaction and uh, inspiration for me to sit with other therapists as they learn to uh, dive into deeper waters with their clients each week. Um, I started this podcast with a goal of doing 12 episodes in 2020. Uh, This was a way for me to kind of push my own edge and get outside my comfort zone by risking putting myself out there. And honestly, my heart still races every time I turn on the mic. Maybe that'll get a little easier as I keep doing this. Well, this is episode 11. It's the final episode of 2020, and it's one shy of my goal. But I still feel pretty damn proud that I stuck with it this far, and I'm excited for what the podcast will hold in the upcoming year. At the time of this recording, Why in the World has just over 2,400 total downloads, which is kind of hard for me to believe, honestly. Um, I don't know what it was in myself when I first started this project, um, but I think there was some real part of me that didn't believe anybody would actually listen. So I wanted to just take a minute to give a huge thank you to all of you who have taken the time to tune in this year and follow along this experiment with me. Um, and wanted to say, like, if you've, if you've enjoyed the podcast, I would be so grateful if you would, you know, head over to iTunes and give it a rating. That is super helpful for helping me spread the word. I'm going to take this episode in a slightly different direction. This is actually going to be my first solo episode. All of the previous episodes have been me interviewing really cool people about what they do and why they do it in the world. This episode is going to be me talking about why therapy works and how that might be different than what you were thinking. And it actually parallels a blog that I recently wrote on the Mindful Counseling GR website. Um, I will link to that in the show notes in case you want to read it. But anyways, thank you all so much for tuning in. Um, I hope that you find this episode helpful. You're listening to Why in the World, a podcast fueled by curiosity, with deep dive conversations exploring meaning, purpose, and why we show up in the world the way we do. I'm your host, psychotherapist Brian Nixon. interviewing new therapists for a position at my counseling practice, I always ask the question, why does therapy work? For me, this is a really important question because it gives me a glimpse into the mind of the therapist, into how they are thinking about themselves, how they're thinking about their client, 
and how they're thinking about what happens in the space between them both. As it turns out, the space between the client and the therapist is perhaps the single most important and impactful part of why therapy works. The space between them is the relationship. In this episode, I'm attempting to turn that question back on myself in a way to try to map my own mind around why I think therapy works. So I want to talk about four ideas. Number one is that we are relational beings. Number two, as relational beings, there's part of us that is unconscious, meaning it's just outside of our awareness, and yet it still has a significant impact in how we live. Number three, because of this unconscious, we tend to repeat the past in the present moment, which also happens to shape how we think about the future. And number four, I want to explore what all of this has to do with therapy in particular. The self is a network of impressions that we form about ourselves in the context of our relationships with others. F. Perlman and J. Frankel. We are born into a relational context that shapes both how we see and show up in the world. My mentor, psychologist Roy Barsness, who was on episode three of the podcast, often says that we are formed in relationship, harmed in relationship, and healed in relationship. I first heard him speak some version of these words 16 years ago when I was in grad school to become a therapist. His words rang deeply true for me then and have become the foundation of how I view my work as a therapist. You see, when we're first born, long before we have the ability to have thoughts or express anything verbally, we begin to know the world by way of our experience. Think of a newborn baby feeling warm, cold, wet, soiled, hungry, full, tired. You get the idea. This early experience is rich with physical sensations and unformulated emotions known as affect states. The way that these physical and emotional states begin to take on meaning is largely relational, based on how the parents or parenting figures respond to these various states. It's not until a later stage of development that children begin to have thoughts about the meaning they take away from these relational encounters. Based on the nature of the early experiences we have, we tend to develop what's known as an attachment style. Shout out to the research of Mary Ainsworth and John Bowlby for all you fellow psychology nerds. I see you. There are four basic attachment styles. For example, if the parenting figures are relatively well attuned to the baby and these states and can respond and engage with warmth, care, and attentive love on a fairly consistent basis, over time the child will develop a secure attachment. This becomes part of the lens through which they will see the world and their relationships as they grow and develop. Children with a secure attachment tend to view the world as a relatively safe place and generally have a healthy sense of autonomy while also being able to trust that their needs will be met when they come up. If the parents are consistently not attuned to the various states of the child or tend to be dismissive and inattentive, then the child will likely develop an avoidant attachment. As they grow and develop, they come to have no expectation that their needs matter or will be met in relationships. They're the self-sufficient, go-it-alone types. Maybe you know someone like this, or maybe you're like this. A child whose parents are either enmeshed, not consistently available, or are overly anxious themselves will create what's known as an anxious, ambivalent attachment in the child. 
As this child grows and develops, they come to believe that the world is not a safe place. They are often more clingy, fearful of their own needs, and can sense that their needs provoke anxiety in their parents. As a result, they are less willing to explore the world around them. Parents who have significant unresolved grief or trauma of their own may find themselves in direct conflict with their child's needs. Over time, the child will have both the desire to be soothed by the parents, but will also feel fear about seeking the soothing they need. This is known as a disorganized attachment and can be seen in the tendency of the child to become easily overwhelmed, space out, dissociate, or freeze like they're stuck and don't know what to do. Our attachment style and developmental wounds move with us through the various stages of human growth and development. They expand out from our family of origin into the types of relationships we form in other social, educational, work, or romantic contexts. Based on our particular attachment style and the timing and types of developmental wounds we experience, we also begin to push parts of ourselves down into our unconscious. This happens because we learn early on that these parts of ourselves don't tend to help us get our basic needs met. This is the psychological idea of repression. It's tricky because this often happens without us even knowing that we're doing it. For example, say you grew up in a family where there was a parent who punished or shamed you every time you expressed anger. You quickly learned that anger is not a welcome emotion and that to express it can, in fact, create a great deal of pain for you. So anger got split off from your consciousness and pushed down into your unconscious. When anger came up, your unconscious autopilot took over and based on your particular attachment style, your conscious your conscious expression of anger got muted or took on a different, more acceptable form. Initially, this defense was useful in that it served as a protection and survival strategy because the absence of anger meant you were more likely to avoid shame and punishment from the parent who couldn't tolerate your anger. The problem is that there's a shadow side to every survival strategy. Things that served us to some level in our childhood don't always serve us well as adults. As I mentioned, these survival strategies often operate just outside our awareness. This means that we are not usually thinking something like, hmm, I feel anger coming up, so I should push it down so that I feel safe again. Again, the survival strategies are put into action automatically. This automatic reaction is directed by your unconscious. The psychological rule says that when an inner situation is not made conscious, it happens outside as fate. Carl Jung. I've mentioned this idea of the unconscious several times, but what do I mean by that? Simply put, the unconscious is that part of us that's not acceptable to our conscious mind, yet it still has a significant impact on our emotions, thoughts, behaviors, and relationships. Think back to the example of anger. Anger is not inherently a bad thing. In fact, we actually need the energy of our anger if we're going to be able to establish healthy boundaries or if we're gonna be able to fight against the numerous injustices in the world. Anger helps us recognize that something is not right and compels us to take action to change it. If our survival strategy automatically shuts our anger down, we will not be able to create the necessary boundary and in fact might not even recognize that there's a problem requiring the boundary in the first place. What's true is that our attachment style and subsequent strategies get deeply embedded in our unconscious always running in the background of our lived experience, perhaps like an operating system in a computer. 
These patterns follow us through the various stages of psychological growth and development and show up again and again in our relationships. The past is never dead. It's not even past. William Faulkner. Freud famously described this as a repetition compulsion, meaning that we tend to unconsciously repeat traumatic scenarios from the past again and again. The themes, emotional experiences, woundings that we lived through in the past get enacted in our present relationships. This unconscious cycle tends to deepen our wounds, defenses, and survival strategies. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why do I always end up in relationships or situations like this? I mean, I swore that after the last time, I would never be in a relationship like this again, and yet, here I am, in the same situation, in spite of my best efforts to create different boundaries. Ah, why does this keep happening? Or maybe you are someone who views yourself as having done a lot of your own personal work to overcome your patterns and heal your past wounds. You might notice that this certainly has impacted the way you live your life in many ways. Maybe you have become better at recognizing and valuing your own needs and better at self-care and setting boundaries. But then you go home to your family of origin for a visit. Maybe it's the holidays. You find yourself feeling dumbfounded that even though you're in your mid-30s or whatever age and have done all of this personal healing work and promised yourself that you were going to show up differently with your family this time, in spite of all that, you suddenly feel like you're 15 years old again and unable to find your hard-earned voice when you're back in the gravitational pull of your family dynamic. You rallied yourself, did some extra meditation, maybe got some new essential oils, and even visualized a different energetic boundary so that you could be more assertive this time. Maybe you were even going to say no a time or two or confront that relative when they make that offensive statement that they always make. But alas, you froze fell back into your passive or avoidant role, and in spite of your best efforts, could not get your voice to move from your head, through your vocal cords, and out of your mouth. By the end of the trip, you feel stuck, exhausted, angry with yourself, and wondering what in the hell just happened. You feel defeated, like some hidden force just hijacked your mind, emotions, and body. To be clear, that's exactly what happened. The hidden force is your unconscious grabbing the wheel from you and steering you back into your old pattern. While you are able to use your new skills, meditations, and self-care to show up differently in most of your life, something about that visit home was just too overwhelming and overpowering. The gravitational pull was just too great. The result? Your nervous system got overwhelmed and sent you into a fight, flight, or freeze response. It bypassed your best intentions and activated all of your old defenses and survival strategies yet again. What does this mean? Are we just stuck and destined to always repeat the past? This is where I think Carl Jung is really helpful. He proposed that there is a perspective function to these repetitions of the past. Your unconscious is not simply trying to hijack you and hold you back, but rather it's actually trying to help you move forward and heal. Each repetition is a clue pointing to some part of you that still needs some care, curiosity, and exploration. The perspective function is a rehearsal for the future, not just a repetition of the past. The unconscious is working to make itself known through these repetitions so that the original wound can be worked through consciously to a different outcome in order to find healing, integration, and open up new possibilities. 
Each repetition is a new opportunity for the pattern to be discovered in the relational space between two people. The dilemma is that the unconscious is so good at creating the repetition that it often leads to the same outcome, reinforcing the wound and activating the same old defenses and survival strategies. This leads us to shut down our curiosity and say things like, well, I guess this is just the way I am. And this mindset leaves us feeling hopeless that anything will ever change. But what does all this have to do with therapy? Relational psychoanalyst Galit Atlas says that we always live something together with our patients while we try to get in touch with the truths of the session. Many clients assume that the therapist is the expert with the answers, while they're the one with the problem to be fixed. The reality, however, is that therapy is far more dynamic than that. It is an evolving relationship between client and therapist. I mean, it's literally two human beings sitting in a room trying to connect with each other. The focus is on the client, but the humanity, attachment style, defenses, and survival strategies of the therapist are in the room just as much as those of the client. In fact, in 2018, the American Psychological Association published an article. In the article, they combined decades worth of research to demonstrate that the key to whether or not therapy will be effective lies in the quality of the relationship between the therapist and the client, not in the particular technique used. Let that sink in for a minute. Patterns of relating that formed during childhood and have been reinforced in one's life will inevitably, inevitably repeat between the therapist and the client, regardless of what style of therapy is being used. As mindfulness expert John Kabat-Zinn says, wherever you go, there you are. In other words, we take our patterns into every relationship we have. The therapy relationship is no different. For this reason, when therapists choose to take their own medicine by remaining committed to their own healing and ongoing evolution, it helps the therapist gain a better understanding of their own inner landscape as they sit with their clients. This is critically important so that the therapist does not unconsciously project their own unresolved issues onto their client and then attempt to fix them in the client rather than doing their own work. It's actually startling to me how many therapists go all the way through grad school some even going on to complete doctorate degrees, but have never been in their own personal therapy and often choose to stop receiving supervision once they attain their full license. Therapists must be able to accept and get curious about their own internal experience as it relates to the client because something of the client's problematic past is being recreated in the present, in the space between the client and the therapist. If the therapist ignores their experience and tries only to focus on the content and story that the client is bringing, then they're going to miss what is taking shape in the process as the relationship develops. It's that classic metaphor of the iceberg. The content being shared is just the tip of the iceberg. It's the part that's above the surface of the water and visible. The process, however, is the remaining majority of the iceberg and exists just beneath the surface of the water, initially out of sight. Therapists can easily become bewitched by the content because Honestly, it's the easiest to think about, to put into categories or offer solutions for, and really, it's the easiest part to stay detached from as the therapist. In other words, the therapist can stay defended and hidden if they are exclusively focusing on the content being presented. They can ignore the fact that they are actually an active participant in what is unfolding in the room. To explore the unfolding process requires more of the therapist. It demands that the therapist pay attention not only to the details being presented, 
but also that they train themselves to notice the more subtle clues that exist in the actual felt experience they're having in the moment with their client. The therapist is not simply an objective observer with tools and solutions, but rather is dynamically involved in an ever-unfolding relational matrix with the client. In fact, the self of the therapist is the greatest tool any therapist has access to. What do I mean by that? Again, I'm saying that the therapist must be attuned not only to the story the client is telling and the emotion the client is experiencing, but also to the therapist's own experience during each session. Why? Because the experience of the therapist offers clues about what is being repeated from the client's past. Of course, the therapist should not just assume that their experience in the moment is the answer to exactly what's being repeated and then simply prescribe that to the client. Instead, the therapist may choose to courageously and vulnerably bring this to the client so the two of them can sort it out together. By doing this, the therapist invites the client to participate by offering their own experience, both of what the therapist is saying, as well as adding their own differing thoughts, emotions, and sensations into the mix. In this way, neither the therapist nor the client is the exclusive expert with the answers. Rather, both parties hold crucial crucial clues as to what is trying to be worked out, and each is invited to add their own ingredient to the stew while also wrestling with the ingredient that the other offered. The expertise in therapy actually exists in the evolving relationship between both people. The experience of the therapist includes things like their own reveries or musings, thoughts, images, memories, emotions, and bodily sensations as they arise with the client. The work of the therapist is to make space for their entire experience without dismissing it as existing only within themselves or hiding it behind some technique. The hope is that the therapist is able to cultivate a mindedness that wonders, what might this experience I'm having tell me about what is taking shape between me and the client? And then they must find a way to articulate this experience and invite the client to work it with them, a type of co-metabolization and co-exploration. This allows room for the unconscious to begin to emerge in the space between the client and the therapist, where it can then be narrated, take on new meaning, and ultimately become integrated. The unconscious of the client and that of the therapist are co-creating a relational dynamic between the two of them. The truly transformative act of therapy is when the therapeutic couple eventually catch themselves in the repetitive enactment of the past. This allows the unconscious pattern to become conscious at which point they can slow it down, explore it with more intention, and ultimately stop the repetitive cycle by working it through to a different outcome. It is in the relational space of working the enactment through together as co-participants rather than therapist as expert that the process of gaining new insight, experiencing healing of past wounds, and transformation of unconscious survival strategies occurs, thus allowing for new possibilities for a more integrated, vibrant and authentic future. Indeed, it is true. We are formed in relationship, harmed in relationship, and healed in relationship. Well, there you have it. The final episode of 2020. And as we look into the next month and into this coming year, may you find peace and a renewed sense of connection with yourself and with others in your world. As always, thanks again for listening. I hope that you found this episode useful um, as you consider the four ideas regarding the nature of why therapy truly works. Uh, by way of recap, 
uh, again, we talked about the fact that we are relational beings, meaning that we make meaning in the context of our relationships. Number two, as relational beings, there's a part of us that's unconscious or split off from our normal awareness, and yet it still has a significant impact on how we live. Number three, because of this unconscious influence, we tend to repeat the past in the present because we are hoping for a different outcome. And number four, all of, us, all of this points us to the reality that true healing and transformation lies in the relational space between the client and therapist. If you are a therapist and interested in learning more about how to enliven your work by working directly in the relational space with your clients, be sure to check out the RFPT program or Relationally Focused Psychodynamic Therapy program. We are currently accepting applications for spring of 2021 and would love to chat with you. So if you have questions or any interest, be sure to check it out. I will link to that program in the show notes. Thanks again for tuning in. Peace.